Okay, so, so today's topic is Christology. Christology is the study of Christ. It answers the question, who is Jesus Christ? And the identity of Christ is no small matter. Many things concerns us in this life. If you're a parent and you have a young child, what you're concerned about is, is, is the baby sleeping? Is the baby eating? Is the baby growing? Is the baby sick? If you're in school, one of the things that would concern you is, am I going to pass this test? Am I, I going to graduate? So in this life, there are many things that concern us. But the thing that should concern us the most out of everything is, who is Jesus Christ? And, and the stakes are high. What's at stake? On, on the question of who is Jesus Christ, is the glory of Christ and the salvation of our souls. You can have different views on eschatology. You can be a pre-mill, a-mill, post-mill, and still be saved. You can be a Calvinist or Arminian and still be saved. But if you get the doctrine of Christ wrong, you can spend an eternity in hell. Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So we don't have the luxury of being wrong about on who is Christ. On this topic of who is Jesus Christ hinges life and death, heaven and hell. And the doctrine of Christ is related to every other point in systematic theology. If you're wrong about just this one topic, You'll be wrong about every single topic in systematic theology. Theology proper, who is God? If, you're, if, you, don't, if you don't believe, Jesus is God. So you, you would be wrong about who God is if you don't believe, if you don't have a right Christology. The doctrine of salvation. Our, our salvation is found in one place, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, the doctrine of providence. God holds all things together by the very word of His power. Jesus governs all things. The doctrine of creation. If you, if you, if you get Christ, your Christology wrong, you'll get the whole doctrine of creation wrong because Colossians tells us that Jesus created all things, invisible realms and visible realms. You'll get the doctrine of bibliology wrong because Jesus Christ is the Word of God and all of biblical revelation from Genesis to Revelation points to Christ. If you get the doctrine of Christ wrong, you get the doctrine of pneumatology wrong because the Bible says the Spirit comes to bear witness of Jesus Christ. So the very core of Christianity is Christ. That's why Paul can say, I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The very core of the gospel is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, Paul says, I, I, For I delivered unto you as a first acceptance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And He was buried. Three days later, He rose from the grave. So the gospel at the very core is Christ. So if you get the doctrine of Christ wrong, then you get the gospel wrong. And if you get the gospel wrong, you will be under the wrath of God and under the curse that we see in Galatians 1, where Paul says, 
If I or an angel from heaven preaches to you any other gospel, what does it say? Let him be accursed. So th- this is not a small thing to, to, to be in error in regards to the Christology. And, and in the first century, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? And in the first century itself, there were many different answers given to this one question Jesus asked. His disciples said, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're one of the prophets. But Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. In the same way, in the first century, we see a, a, a variety of different answers. Today, not only outside the church, but inside the church, there's a confusion on who Jesus Christ is. So, Legionnaire Ministries, which was the ministry of the late R.C. Sproul, this year had a state of theology, 2022. And in this survey, they surveyed you know, uh, some evangelicals and people in broad and one of the statements in the survey was, um, and one of the statements was, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. True or false? False. Do, do you know that 43% of evangelicals agreed with the statement, Jesus is a great teacher, but he, was not, he is not God? 43% of evangelicals. Uh, How about this one? Uh, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. True or false? 73% of evangelicals agree with that statement. And, And this is, if you study church history, historical theology, that's the Arian heresy where Jehovah, that's Jehovah, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. Yes, Pastor. People believe, uh, do not believe the uh, um, biblical worldview. I mean, just think, if they don't have a biblical worldview, they don't believe the scripture. So what you just said ties right in with what uh, uh, the observation. So we see 73 evangelicals agree with that statement. And this goes against not only the Bible, but the creeds and confessions of the church. This goes against the Nicene Creed, which has which says, Jesus was not made, but eternally begotten and one in being with the Father. So, what are some false views of Christ that we hear today? Lucifer's brother, and that is the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Lucifer's brother. Emery. Okay, we want to put the car in park right there. He he is not the must. Okay, that's important. That's an important one to address. Uh, Christ is not the Messiah. Um, the whole of biblical storyline from Genesis to Revelation points to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We see in Genesis 3.15, 
where in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, what theologians call this, the first gospel. And what we see is, it says God himself will put enmity. Donald Gray Barnhouse calls this the invisible war, where you see this traced throughout the whole biblical storyline, where you see the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman at war. You see this with Herod killing the children. And ultimately, and today you even see it played out with the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But ultimately, we, we see this promise fulfilled in the life of Christ and His healing and in Him casting out demons and, and, and ultimately in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. It says in Acts 10.33, Acts 10, I believe, it says, I don't know, Acts 10.38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with them. Around 700 B.C., Isaiah prophesied how the Messiah will come into human history. And this ties in perfectly with Christmas. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call His name Emmanuel. God is with us. So here, just from the Old Testament itself, we see a person that was going to become. He's going to be a born of a woman. He'll be a man. And also he'll be God with us. So he'll also be God. 700 years before Christ, the prophet Micah in 5.2 prophesies of one that was going to be born in Bethlehem. And it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, who are to little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So this one that is going to be born in Bethlehem is from ancient of days. So it shows that this person is going to be both God and man, right from the Old Testament. And uh, this is an uh, interesting prophecy in Malachi 3.1. If you have your Bibles, you might want to... It's probably something that you've never seen before when you was, or paid attention to when you was reading your Bible. Um, in Malachi 3.1, this is... 400 years before Christ, uh, the prophet Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And that's speaking of John the Baptist. And uh, now it's speaking of Christ. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So when was the temple destroyed? 70 AD, but it says the Lord will come to his temple. So that means if the Messiah were to come, it has to come before 70 AD. And inside the temple was recorded all the genealogies. So one of the ways, if someone claims to be a Messiah, one of the ways you attested is look up the genealogies that was in the temple. So when the temple was destroyed, all the genealogies was destroyed as well. It's still looking for the Messiah. There's no way that he'll ever come because all those genealogies have been lost. 
they would never be able to find out that who was the son of David. So it's, right. they, it's, it's amazing how blind they are to that. Yeah. Yeah, you would need the genealogy. That's the only way you know this person is from a son of Abraham, son of David, from the tribe of Judah. A any other false views of Christ? Oh, Dan, you want to say something? I was just going to add, I mean, you could say every major religion in the world has some, even if it's just a historical view of Jesus, you know, I mean, the Muslims believe he was a prophet. Um, Muslim, just a prophet. Yeah, just a prophet. And I mean, even if you talk to like spiritualists or like people who are into yoga or, you know, far Eastern religion, they'll say, oh, yeah, Jesus, you know, he was a he was a good guy. But of course, they'll deny the miracles the resurrection, you know, um, and everything else. So it's interesting that people still have that, like, you know, the modern-day view is more like, probably like, oh, yeah, he was just a, you know, a good teacher, you know? And he taught us to love and have peace, which is, we you know, was... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Jewish view, just the son of a carpenter. And uh, just the prophet, there's people today that say, oh, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. No, we don't, because they believe he's just a prophet. We believe he's God. Any other false views of Christ that you encountered or hear about today? They, oh, yeah. Je okay, let's uh, put the car in park, because uh, there's a lot of Jehovah Witnesses in New York. Uh, they say he's a God, but not only a God, he's the first and greatest created being of God. And he's also, they believe he's actually Michael, the archangel. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Mm. So, uh, regarding Jesus being Michael the archangel, in Hebrews 1, verses 4 to 8, it says, Having become as much superior to the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, for to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So here, the Jehovah Witnesses are in a dilemma because the angels are worshiping Christ, and God the Father is calling God the Son, God. So, uh, another uh, favorite proof text for the Jehovah Witnesses is Colossians 1.15. And Colossians 1.15 is a very important text. Uh, for In terms of the uh, Council of Nicaea, because this is the very proof text Arius, who was an elder at the Church of Alexander, used to purport that Jesus is not the creator, but was a created being. That Jesus is not eternal, but he came into one 
at some point in existence. So the verse is, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the, 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 this is why it's helpful if you want to do apologetics to know a little bit Greek. The, the word there for firstborn is uh, proto-takas, which means supreme, first rank, And preeminent. That's what uh, proto uh, prototakas mean. That's uh, that's what Paul uses there. That specific word. So the Greek word there for uh, firstborn is prototaka, supreme firstborn, preeminent. But if Paul wanted to say Jesus is the first created being, there's a Greek word there he could have used, but Paul didn't use that. He could have used, simply used the Greek word prototesis, first created, but he used prototakas, which is preeminent. And the context is the kryptonite for the cults. In the very context of Colossians 1, if you go to uh, verse 16, it says, For by Him all things were created, in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Because Jesus is the Creator, He is preeminent, supreme over His creation. And uh, Athanasius stood firm in the face of heresy, while the majority was against Him. Athanasius stood firm, and eventually the truth of God triumphed over the ever. So in the first century council of Nicaea, Arius said um, Jesus is of a different substance than, than the Father. So, and the Greek word there is heterousios. Athanasius and Alexander, which is the orthodox position, said Jesus is of the same substance with the Father, which is homoousios. And Eusebius, which was an early church historian, said Jesus is the similar substance with the Father, which is homoi usias, one Greek letter difference. So, any other uh, views of. If you look at Psalm uh, 102, um, verses um, 26 and 27, you'll see the same thing repeated in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, uh, 11 and 12. Uh, uh, that's a, 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 a text to use against uh, Jehovah Witnesses. It shows the absolute deity of Christ. Mm, amen. A- any other false views of Christ you heard of or encountered? Uh, here's one. Um, I encountered this one one time. I was in uh, Lehman College sharing the gospel. One, I was trying to share the gospel, and one person came up to me and said, Jesus Christ is a myth. And uh, any historian worth their salt would attest to the historicity of Jesus Christ. Tacitus was a Roman histori- historian, and he, he said there was a person which was uh, suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. 
Josephus, which was a Jewish historian, speaks of one that was crucified and also makes reports of one that was resurrected. Even the Babylonian Talmud, which didn't speak positively of Christ, said that Jesus was crucified. And the Babylonian Talmud said Jesus did miracles by the power of sorcery. So we hear we have extra biblical sources that attest to Christ's historicity. Now, Bar Ehrman, which is he's one of the enemies of Christianity, um, he's a, he's a, he's one of the professors and scholars at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. He even says one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus Christ was crucified on the orders of Roman perfect of Judea Pontius Pilate. So. And uh, you don't have to be an expert on all the false views of Christ. FBI agents, when they're studying different um, counterfeit currency, they don't sit all day and studying all the counterfeits. They master the genuine uh, currency, and as they master the genuine currency, they can immediately detect when there's a currency that is counterfeit. In the same way, we must study the doctrine of Christ, so we don't fall into the deception and false doctrine of the cultists and um, liberal theologians and professors. So we are in a truth war. And Satan, we see throughout history that he primarily attacks two doctrines. The, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of salvation. He primarily attacks these two doctrines because he knows that if he distorts the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation, he can keep people under his power. And uh, the, the doctrine of Christ, we see in the thir- uh, fourth and fifth century at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon, this was ironed out in the fires of controversy. And when you read those um, the councils, you'll see how much theological position is there. And all the, um, any church that doesn't hold to the Council of Nicaea, Council of Chalcedon is apostate. And also the doctrine of salvation, we see this in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you want to vet, if someone says they're a Christian and you want to vet them, if, someone, if some group is there and you want to vet that they're a cult or not, you can just simply ask them, who is Jesus Christ and how do you go to heaven? Based on those Christians, you would tell if it's a cult or if that's a false Christian. So that's a good theological test to give. Um, so the, uh, before we go on to our first point, humanity of Christ, any questions or comments? Okay, so our first point is the uh, humanity of Christ. Um, since the deity of Christ is so attacked in our modern day, from liberal theologians to Muslims to Jehovah Witnesses, us as Protestants and Evangelicals, we have put all of our study and effort into focusing and defending the deity of Christ. And sometimes our view of the deity of Christ can swallow up we can have such a view of the deity of Christ that swallows up his humanity. So sometimes evangelicals tend to not uh, focus on the humanity of Christ. 
Yes, Marcia. When you look at all the false um, religion and all of those things that you were saying before, it's uh, all of them reject the humanity of Christ. Uh, except for the Muslims believe Jesus is just a man. The uh, right. Jews believe he's just a man. Right. But, but that's, that's the, the, the whole thing, as John says, that um, if we reject that he come in the flesh. Right. That he is a man, he's a human being, he was born. Um, Philippians says he took upon himself humanity. Yes. He take it upon himself. Right. Yeah. And, and when you think about every other religion, you think of um, that. They reject the humanity of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, today we see attacks on the deity of Christ. But in the first century, the first heresy to attack the church was a heresy called docetism. And it comes from the Greek uh, dokia, which means to appear. So the uh, docetists said that Jesus appeared to look like a human, but he was not really a human. And and, uh, the Apostle John, as you said, has very strong words for those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. In 1 John 2, 2, 4, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world today. Jesus' humanity was different from us in two ways. He was born of a virgin and he was born without a sinful nature. And Jesus was truly human. Being truly human, he went through all the developmental stages of a human. At one point, Jesus was a fetus. And Jesus, being a fetus, forever established the sanctity of human life. Any any professing Christian that's a pro-choice is committing a Christological heresy. Because you're saying that Jesus in the womb of Mary was not really a human. So, and not only, so Jesus was an infant. He was, he was a fetus, an infant, a toddler, a teenager, an adolescent. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So just like baby Ian at times, his diaper is full of poop. In the same way, Christ's diaper was full of poop. In the same way, Ian sometimes cries on the top of his lungs when he's hungry for milk. Jesus was crying in the top of his lungs for milk. Jesus had a, a full, he had a cardiac system with heart, blood vessels. He had a respiratory system, a digestive system. He was truly a man. And just like we learned at, in Eric's uh, class that he took, he said that man is not uh, a monist, but he is a bipartite being. He is a body-soul composite. And uh, one of the heresies in the early church was a heresy called Apollinarianism, which teached that Jesus was, uh, had a body, but he didn't have a human soul. It said that his divine nature took the place of the human soul. So why was it important that Jesus had a complete human nature, body and soul? Why is that important? Paul? I'd like to just to share, I'm going to include this in it, but the reason there has been attacks about his deity 
and about his humanity. If he just had humanity, there's no way a human person could pay for the sins of the world. Uh, if he was not God, then uh, he uh, then he could not. In other words, he had to be both God and man to pay the debt uh, uh, for our sin. What, that's really the attacks upon his deity, upon his humanity is so vivid. That's what Satan is using uh, because he had to be both or there'd be no salvation. Amen. And you want to take a jab at that? Why was it important? Jesus had a complete human nature. Not only a body, but a human soul as well. Something that I like to... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, amen to, to what Pastor Paul said. That's a resounding amen. Um, the way that um, I like to think of it is how Mark Jones put it, that anything that Christ did not assume as a human being, he could not redeem. Yes. I thought that was very effective. Yes, yes. I think Mark Jones was quoting Gregorio Nazanius. He said, uh, what is not assumed is not healed. Yeah, so, it, perfect. Um, so correct Christology is necessary for our salvation. And Jesus served as our, he needed a, a body and a soul because he was our representative, covenantal, federal head. And he had to represent us. And be both fully God and fully man to be our Redeemer. Yes, Emery. With Jesus being fully God and fully man, we know that he, we have identity with him. We know that he has felt in his body, experienced everything that we have. Amen. And this is a point where some evangelicals may struggle in terms of the humanity of Christ. But right now, Jesus in heaven is also fully God and fully man. Because when Jesus was incarnate, when, when, uh, when he was born of a virgin and was incarnate, came in the flesh, he forever was joined to human nature. And First Timothy 2.5 is in the present tense. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And some people think that Jesus at his ascension shed his humanity like a costume. If that was the case, when we go to heaven, we can't have the beatific vision where we see Christ face to face. Because God is spirit. We wouldn't be able to see him if he was not a man. Yes. Yes, but like you said, he's flesh on flesh. And like we see it in the gospel accounts, when Jesus was resurrected, his body is now a glorified body. That's just like us, where when we be transformed and resurrected, our body will be like his glorious body. Uh, so one thing that is tough to work out is that, so if Jesus takes on um, a body at the incarnation, does the nature of God change in his incarnation? Does he take on some aspect of his being that he didn't have before? I'm asking. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna address that question in like a, in, in I think in two more points I'm gonna get there. Okay. I'm gonna swing back to that question. Excellent question, by the way. 
Any other questions? Okay, uh, okay, and I'm going to um, go to the next point, the deity of Christ. Um, John 1.1 1, 1 is the locus classicus, the, the, the main text, the, the central text for the deity of Christ. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in, in the beginning was the Word. This shows that the Son is eternal. This refutes uh, the Arianists, which teach that Jesus came in a point in time that he was created. And Jesus is eternal. Jesus, when he was 30 years old in John 8.58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Speaking of his pre-existence. The, the second clause we see is not only the, in the beginning was the Word, but it says the Word was with God. The Greek word there for with God is proston theon. The, the Word was face to face with God, facing towards God. So this shows us that the Word, Jesus, is distinct from the Father. This avoids the heresy of modalists. T.D. Jakes holds to modalism that Jesus and the Father is the same person. Jesus, the Father was, never became incarnate. The Spirit was never incarnate. The Father never died on the cross. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. At the baptism, what do we see? Jesus was baptized. The Spirit descended from heaven. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. And uh, the last um, clause, it says, And the Word was God. So it shows that the Son shares in the full divinity with the Father. So what other evidences do you have for the deity of Jesus Christ? Isaiah um, 9, verse 6. Um, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of his government there shall be no end, and of peace there shall no be the end. Then goes on to tie, tie in with David. Amen. Marcia? Uh, I found Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, um, 6, where it says, um, Though who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God. So um, uh, uh, he was, he's God, he's always been God. I, I love how um, Philippians put it because it, it, it gives us the sense that he willingly came down for us. He took upon us and identified with us in our humanity. And as Anne-Marie was um, mentioned, uh, it, 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 it if, if he didn't do that in body and soul and being a human being, um, how could he understand that our touch with, mm. as Hebrew said, the feelings of our infirmities? So he was fully God mm -hmm. and fully man mm -hmm. in order to do that. Frank, you had your hand up. I was just going to say in John's Gospel, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. That's a, that's a powerful text. Here is the Orthodox Jew looks at Jesus and says, Ho kurios mu, ho teos mu. My Lord and my God. It doesn't get any more crystal clear than that. Jesus also, he, he, uh, if you want, here, here's a, a helpful acronym to help you if you ever need ammunition. Uh, this is from uh, Putting Jesus in His Place by Robert Bauman. In his book, so if you want a good book on defending just that one topic, the deity of Christ, that's a good book. And uh, he has this acronym, HANDS. So HANDS stands for 
honor, attributes, names, deeds, seat. Jesus has the honor of Christ. He's exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He receives worship. As we saw it read in uh, Hebrews 1, let all the angels of God worship him. God is a jealous God. He, gives his glory, he shares his glory with none other. Attributes of God. Jesus is omnipresent. He said, I will be with you to the end of the age. Um, Jesus has the attributes of God. He stills the storm, which shows his omnipotence as God. Uh, he has the names of God. Uh, John 8.58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. The Greek word there is ego aimi. That's the same one in the Septuagint they use in Exodus 3.14. When uh, God tells Moses, Tell him I am who I am has sent you. He takes the Old Testament name for God and applies it to himself. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Savior. That's the title for God alone. It says in Isaiah of. Uh, uh, Isaiah, I am God and there is no other Savior. So he has the names of God. He does the deeds of God. Remember in the Gospels, who can forgive sins except God alone? Only God can do that. And he shares this. Let let me quote it. Let me get this. In Luke, it says, um, it's amazing how his mother's uh, what she said about him. And Mary said, notice, this, notice the sequence of this. First, she addresses the Lord and then Savior. And Mary said, My soul will magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Hmm. The mother of the mother of Amen. So we looked at the so before I move further, any questions or doubts or with the deity of Christ. Okay, so I'm gonna go to my next point, the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. Uh, John 1.14, it says, This is what Christmas is all about, the incarnation of Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here, we see the doctrine of hypostatic union is in the one person of Christ as two distinct natures. And when we study historical theology, one of the best formulations of Christology we find in the Chalcedonian Christology. And I don't think it hasn't been improved upon throughout the history. In the Council of Chalcedon, which was in 451 AD, it says that Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So we're going to look at these four negatives. Uh, Without confusion. Uh, That refutes the heresy of uh, monophysitism. Does anybody want to take a jab on what that is? <laughs> so monophysitism, it, it, it was the heresy that uh, taught that the two natures, the two distinct natures, the divine and the human, are mixed together to provide one nature. 
So it kind of like you get a Superman. But, uh, but Jesus was not a Superman. His, those two natures were distinct. And those two natures retained all the attributes of self. We see that Jesus was uh, Matthew 4. He was hungry. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus was tired. Jesus wept. Jesus grew. And we also see that Jesus was omniscient. He was, uh, he's omnipotent. Um, another, so without confusion, without change. Without change, that uh, addresses Frank's question. Um, this, without change, canonic heresy. So the, uh, in the early 19th century, canonic theologians, they taught that at the incarnation, Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes. So at the incarnation, when he was on earth, he's no longer... He was omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. At the incarnation, he emptied himself of his divine attributes. That's what the uh, kenosis theory teaches. And, uh, and the proof text they use is Philippians 2, 5 to 8. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Philippians 2, 2 5 to 8. Philippians 2, 5 to 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice the verse doesn't say that Jesus emptied himself of all his divine attributes. The verse says he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. So the emptying regarding there is not a subtraction, but is an addition. He assumed a human nature. Yes, Pastor Paul. Um, if you follow on in that passage, you see it uh, corrects uh, that uh, follows it because it says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that in the name of Jesus every name shall bow of things in heaven, things in earth. Uh, in other words, what he's saying is that word Lord shall confess him as Lord. That's the same authority as the Father. Amen. So, going back to uh, Frank's question, there was no change in his deity. He was still omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent while he was on earth. And, uh, and just like um, in Malachi, he says, it says, speaking of one of the attributes of God is immut- immutability. So I am the Lord, I change not. And going to the New Testament, one of the attributes of Jesus is immutability. Jesus Christ, Hebrew says it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Frank? Um, so his immutability as far as his divine attributes doesn't change. But like you said, when he's incarnate, he, it's an addition. Does that addition change his nature? As being divine, like, uh, does that make sense? Does that question make sense? No, it, it doesn't change his nature. He just assumed a humanity, okay. so his nature remains the same. There's no mm. change in God. Okay, in that sense, besides taking on a assuming a human flesh. 
Yeah. Right, right. It doesn't compromise the doctrine of immutability. Because he remains the same. If, if, if the canonic theologians are true, then there's a compromise and immutability. Then there's a change. So, just so I make sure I understand. Um, so, Christ's humi- humiliation um, was the addition of his flesh, not yes. the putting aside of his privileges of his deity. Am I understanding that correctly? Right. His uh, what a better term than uh, better terminology than empty himself of his attributes is his uh, is veiling. His deity was, was more veiled than emptied. So he still remained fully God, but it was veiled, his glory. Yes. But how about the actual exercising of his deity? Like that wasn't put aside? The actual exercising of his deity. So that's a good question. So Jesus was still operating as deity. While Mary was upholding Jesus in his arms, Jesus was still sustaining and holding the world together by the very word of his power. That he never ceased that dead or that power. Right. My goodness, what more can he do? He was still ceasing. Yeah, he never ceased being God. Or though, can you imagine what would happen to the universe? Think about the name of his name was called Emmanuel, God with us. <laughs> Yeah, because um, I, I mean, obviously, you know that we're studying the um, Christ, and a big discussion was that um, as far as like was Christ. Um, obviously, we can assume that in His assumption of flesh, the triune God was divided. We can assume that, right? Mm-mm. So, in that sense. Um, in that false assumption, um, Christ remained, like Christ holding everything by the word of his power remained, right? Yes. But, but as a man, because of the hypostatic union, um, his exercising of his divinity was through, I'm asking, was it through the Holy Spirit as fully man? Well, I would say the uh, Jesus resisting temptation, um, living righteously and holy, he did all that by the power of the Holy Spirit, depending on God. So, like, like something that that, um, and I'll stop here, so I don't take most of the time. But, and again, I want to, I want to, I want to understand it with well, precision. In that, he sets an example for us. Amen. That that I answer that. Um, because I mean, we discussed that a lot in the group. Um, as far as like, we would we would we would naturally assume, like I did, honestly. If you ask somebody, "Hey, why did Jesus walk on water?" He was like, "Because he was God, right?" Um, but everything, especially how Mark Jones defines it, is everything that he did that you can define as deity was done by the Spirit in the flesh, not in and not in Christ. Uh, uh, exercising his own deity apart from the activity of the Holy Spirit. 
And I found that interesting because I had to undo and really think mm. and go to the text where it says, by the spirit, he cast out demons. By the spirit, he healed. By the spirit, I felt power leave from me. I'm like, man, is it that? You know what I'm saying? So I just want to be clear that although Christ was fully God, the exercising of his deity was done in his humanity through the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you agree with that? I, I think his, his, he has a divine nature, human nature, and those two natures is communicated to the person of Christ. So you see Jesus at times um, being hungry, being thirsty. Uh, sometimes he doesn't know certain things. At the same time, he's omniscient. At the same time, he's omnipresent, even though he's located in a finite place in his body. Uh, so, and, uh, and you see at times, like, stilling the storm. I think that's a showcase of his deity when he stops the storm and control over the weather. That's something God does. So in his omniscient, um, when he said to Nathaniel, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, and that, that was amazing to attend. Mm -hmm. So the next point in the Council of Chalcedon is uh, without division. Which uh, we talked about before, Apollinarianism. Um, they taught Jesus was kind of like a half human. He only had a body, not a human soul. So we, we see that... Uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's not a split deity. And, uh, and then the last point is without separation. And that uh, refutes the heresy of Nestorianism. Nestorianism teaches that uh, the hypostatic unit is in the one person of Christ, there are two distinct natures. Nestorianism says in the, Jesus was two persons, a divine person and a human person. And uh, see, the, the, the Bible never says Jesus' human nature was going and doing this, and his divine nature went and did this. It, both of the attributes of the natures are attributed to the one person. That's why in Acts it can say that God purchased with his blood the church. And um, so, so, yeah, both of the natures is communicated to the person of Christ. So, and um, we want to conclude with the practical applications for the doctrine of Christ. The, the, the doctrine of Christ this Christmas should increase our awe and reverence of God, and it should create a, a humility in us. Him who is worshipped by cherubim and seraphims, him who spoke the worlds into existence out of nothing, him who is the Lord of hosts, he has the armies of heaven at his beckoning. One angel can kill 100, 185,000 Assyrians. He has legions at a simple command. The nations are but a drop in the bucket before him. He is the one, he's the king of kings, the lord of lords, the one that the heavens and the earth adores. So, so, and 
Jesus, who is being worshipped in all of eternity by thrice holy angels, in his humiliations, condescended, was in the form of a servant. And he came, he washed his disciples' feet, and he died for us rebels. And he rose again in the third day. What glorious news this is. What reason to celebrate. We should be, we should be the most uh, happiest people during Christmas time. <laughs> Not only should this increase our all reverence and humility, uh, but the doctrine of Christ points us to the exclusivity of Christ. Just like we said, Paul hit the nail on the head. Our Savior, our Redeemer, must be both God and man. And there's only one person that is both God and man. Jesus Christ. As God, He only can save us from God Himself. He only can save us from the wrath of God. He only can take our infinite penalty and pay for that sin. But the Bible says a kinsman must redeem us. Our, Our very kinsman. And the prophecies point to one that is both God and man, and only, and and as a man, he can only. Uh, we need a man to be our mediator, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Only a man, the second Adam, can represent us and be our federal head of a new creation. That's why the Jesus of Charles Hayes Russell can't save us. That's why the Jesus of Joseph Smith can't save us. That's why the Jesus of Christian Science, Mary Baker Eddy, can't save us. That's why in Acts 4.12 it says, For there is one name given to men under heaven whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. And not only that, the doctrine of Christ. Right now we live, one of the popular fads right now in Christianity is deconstruction. Which is just a biblical term for deconstruction is apostasy. And we see, we see people like um, Joshua Harris, the one that wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He apostatized for his faith. He has a, a course that he made online on how to deconstruct your faith. When you understand who is Jesus Christ, apostasy should be unthinkable. We will become like the disciples. Where should we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Not only that... Knowing Jesus Christ gives us the strength to endure persecution and suffering for Christ. We'll, one time I was sharing the gospel with the Satanist and he became angry and threw his drink on me. And that, that day I suffered a paper cut for Jesus Christ. So whether you suffer a paper cut for Jesus Christ or martyrdom, when you know who Christ is, you won't be discouraged with your head down and go home and say, I'm never doing this again. You'll be like the disciples who, that said, praising God and saying, I was counted worthy to suffer for that name. And so we see, when we know who Christ is, you'll be able to suffer for Him. You'll be able to endure hardship and persecution. And so the doctrine of Christ is a doctrine that we should not only love and obey, but it's a doctrine that in this time of rising heresy and false teaching, this is a doctrine that we must defend. John Calvin says, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. Every Christian is an apologist. 
Don't ever let the, the cultist put you into a theological pretzel. Learn God's word. Learn systematic theology. So you can defend the, the truth of God to God's glory. So God's truth is not only ours to love and obey, not only ours to defend, but it's ours to proclaim. What a privilege. This great king, the one who is in majesty and glory, who, who, who is greater than all the men of the earth. He's greater than Attila the Hun. He is greater than Alexander the Great. He's greater than Nietzsche. He's greater than Karl Marx. He calls us to be His ambassadors in this dark world. What a privilege it is. And I just want to leave you with this challenging question. How many people have heard the saving name of Christ from your lips? Any questions or comments before we close? Going back to His humanity, I like um, the second chapter of Hebrews. And it says, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Mm. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death mm. as the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were the lifetime subject to bondage. And he says, for verily he took not upon him the nature of angels, but he took upon him the seed of Abraham. Mm. Any more lasting questions or comments before Frank? Yeah, I was I was just gonna ask. We were talking about it in one of the fellowships that um, it's appropriate to say one of the things that attests to Christ's deity um, is he remains in perfect fellowship within the Trinity while he's incarnate. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Any other questions? Okay, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this uh, time that you have given us to scratch the mere surface on who Jesus Christ is. We pray, Lord, that you open our eyes to behold his glory. Give us this uh, new year that's coming up. Give us an increased desire to be like Paul that counted all things as dung that he may know Christ. We pray, Lord, that you give us a heart to uh, proclaim Christ, to love Christ, to defend Christ. Help us as a church to bring glory to Christ in this white plains. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, that, uh, that for his humiliation, he set example for us, and his exaltation is our mediator, our high priest, our, our, our prophet, our king, our priest. We thank you, Lord, for all his works and everything that he has done to accomplish and apply salvation to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your gracious work. Help us, Lord, in return to give you praise, glory, and honor all the, our days. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.